one of the things about honey is that it has been used as a medicine throughout all of history and almost every culture that's had access to it has used it as a medicine. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. It's golden, delicious, the nectar of the gods imbued with goodness and fertility as honeymoons practised from middle age to present times tell. Honey. It's long been used as a traditional medicine and for healing. From ancient Egyptians and Romans to the Russian army in World War I and by Australia's first peoples in rich, pragmatic and sacred ways. Honey's antibacterial and other properties mean that it has long been used to treat wounds and intestinal diseases. But what are the current science of how it works for health and healing? What new research is underway to enable us to better understand and to value the magic of honey and honeybees for healing, for human health, for biodiversity and food security, and in our unique and recently fire-torn forest and rural landscapes. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with two really eminent Australian researchers who are at the forefront of honey, health and healing research, who work in close conjunction with the honeybee research, apiary, rural and forestry research sectors and broader community. Yes, I'm speaking with Professor Liz Harry and Dr Nural Chopchiton, who are both leading researchers with the I3 Institute, Infection Immunity Innovation, within the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome, Liz and Nural. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. How are you? Absolute pleasure, Anthea. We're fine. We're great. Excellent. Nural, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Anthea? Thanks for having us on. Oh, I'm well, like everyone, coping with this crazy lockdown, I suppose. <laughs> um, before we dig in, a little further introduction. Professor Liz Harry is the Professor of Biology of the I3 Institute at UTS. She obtained her PhD at the University of Sydney, then went to Harvard University as a National Institutes of Health, USA, postdoctoral fellow. There, she pioneered the development of fluorescence microscopy techniques for seeing where proteins are in a bacterial cell, and in recent years has turned her skills to honey, in particular, honey's antibacterial and antifungal properties. Liz's research and industry accolades are many, and they include the 2002 Australian Eureka Prize for Scientific Research, and in 2008, the Frank Fenner Award. Dr. Neural Chuckerton is a microbiologist who obtained her PhD from the University of New South Wales in 2015, where she investigated the effects of Australian honeys on the growth of the beneficial and potentially harmful bacteria in the human gut. Now a key member of Professor Harry's team, Neural, is internationally recognised for her skills in science research and communications. So, Ms. Neural, 
how did you two first meet and how long have you worked together? I, our memories may be different. I'm a lot older than Narelle, so mine might be failing me. Um, <laughs> I am a professor after all and very absent-minded. So I think I knew about Narelle from my microbiology friends at University of Sydney and I remember meeting her, so I vaguely remember what she looked like and I knew she was working in honey and that was before I was working in honey. And then when we got some funding from AgriFutures, uh, to look at the antibacterial activities of honeys in Australia. Uh, my microbiology friends who'd known Narelle and had trained her as, as a student said, how about Narelle Chokchet and she would be perfect for this. And she walked into my office at UTS and we ha I haven't looked back since. So it's been a fantastic partnership. She's a lovely friend, great friend, a wonderful um, hard worker and an absolute smashing scientist. A smashing scientist. Adira, what about Professor Harry, that, that rather clever, brilliant woman we both know and love so well? She is very clever and very brilliant. I was only an honours student at the time, so I was at the University of Sydney uh, and I was working on the antibacterial properties of honey and looking at why bacteria don't become resistant to honey. That was one of my major questions during my honours project. And we, did, we had a little collaboration with... Uh, Professor Harry all those years ago where uh, another student in our lab was looking at uh, the proteins in bacteria and how they responded to honey treatment and Liz was an expert in this and that's where the collaboration started so I got to visit UTS and visit Liz's lab and see what kind of work they were doing and that was our first meeting and you know when you're a little student you think oh gosh I'm meeting so many professors and it's very intimidating but Liz was lovely and such a positive energy when she talked about her research and I thought this is great because I was just surrounded by people who loved doing the research that they were doing so it was very inspiring for me and then I went off and did my PhD at a different university and then Liz contacted me uh, at the end of that PhD to say I've got this position that you might be suitable for what do you think come on in and I thought I was going in for a chat and it turned out I walked out with you know a position working with Liz looking at more fun honey things. So it's been an excellent few years working with Liz. So around the world, the health of bees and other pollinators and the ecologies they rely on and support are challenged on numerous fronts. Honeybee pollination is vital for food security, of course, and for biodiversity. And here in Australia, it's annually worth some $14 billion plus to, to Australian agriculture alone. And in the US, the precarious state of things led President Obama in 2014 to issue an urgent presidential memorandum to create a strategy to promote the health of honeybees and other pollinators, something President Trump, I'm sure, followed up on. Ural, at least you and colleagues are pioneering honey research on really diverse, important fronts, exploring and translating ancient, almost intrinsic known knowledge into validated scientific knowledge from traditional health knowledge to the medicinal, therapeutic and clinical, exploring diverse potential benefits and uses of honey. There's clearly a huge uh, amount at stake for human health, for biodiversity recovery and for the apiary and agricultural industries that rely on pollinators. But before we talk about your, your current research, including the New South Wales bushfires recovery linked up research you're involved in, and your personal stories about the lure and fascinations of honey, can I ask you to describe or to paint an overview for a relative newcomer to honey science of what the key therapeutic or healing uses and applications of honey are 
and how they perhaps respectively relate to Manuka, Manuka, or Leptospermum nectars, and to eucalyptus-fed honey. Liz, would you like to lead us off to, to sort of paint a helicopter picture. Yeah, I actually think Norella's best to answer that because she started off in this space and uh, although I'm involved in it, I think she's she's best placed to talk about it actually. I can, I can do an overview and then Liz, you can jump in with anything that you want to add. So one of the things about honey is that it has been used as a medicine throughout all of history and almost every culture that's had access to it has used it as a medicine um, of some sort. And there are so many historic records, not just of beekeeping or honey hunting as it was back before beekeeping as we know it was invented, uh, but also its significance, whether that's spiritual, magical, the healing powers of honey have been recorded in lots of different rock paintings and carvings, sacred texts all around the world. And a lot of the most well-documented historic uses come from the ancient Egyptians, where they did use honey as a big part of their medicinal practices. And they had very complex medicinal practices as well, surgeries and mummification. And honey was held in very high regard, a sacred thing, but also used a lot in their therapeutics. Uh, and mostly throughout history, it's been very popular as a wound dressing to help with wound healing or any kind of skin or topical application that it could be used for. And for a long time, we didn't know why it was so effective. Um, and it wasn't really until the discovery of microbes and how they cause infections and learning about honey's antimicrobial properties that we could piece that together. So honey not only has these amazing wound healing benefits where it stimulates wound healing, it stimulates healthy tissue in our wounds or any kind of topical uh, injury, but it also has antimicrobial properties. So it means that it can kill germs that cause infections and stop those wounds from healing. So we're really interested in understanding more about this antimicrobial property. Why is it that it's so effective? How can it be so broad spectrum? Why does it work against so many different types of microbes? So not just bacteria, but fungi and other microbes as well that cause infections. And why is it that despite thousands of years of use in this kind of way, do these microbes not learn to fight the effects of honey off? So we've got, you know, honey was used for thousands of years and it was really only the discovery of modern antibiotic drugs that meant that honey was no longer used in the clinic anymore. It was replaced by antibiotics, which are one of the wonders of modern medicine, of course, but a lot of people are now aware that we are having issues with antibiotic resistance, which means that the bacteria uh, that we would normally be able to kill with these types of drugs have learned to evolve and fight off the killing effects of the antibiotic drugs. So they're no longer as effective and we're really running out of treatment options for infections, particularly caused by these antibiotic resistant superbugs as we refer to them. Uh, but there are no reports of honey resistant superbugs and that's really fascinating for us from a scientific point of view, but also a clinical application as well. Why is it that honey works? And can we modify or design new drugs that work in the same way as honey so that we can mitigate some of these antibiotic resistance issues? So that's one really common way that honey has been used as an antibacterial, topically though. Uh, but we know that most people that are using honey aren't really using it as a topical application to treat wounds or skin infections. A lot of people are eating honey and associating some kind of health benefit with that. So this is another area that we're really interested in uncovering. It's been used, again, anecdotally for lots of different digestive issues. It's been a remedy for things like constipation and diarrhea, any kind of stomach aches, stomach ulcers, 
And again, there's not really much science to support why that has been effective for so long. So one other area that we're looking at is whether honey is working as a functional food or a prebiotic food, which is a type of food that feeds not just us, but also the microbes that live in our gut that have direct benefits to our health or disease states. So if we can maintain this healthy gut balance, that the microbiome, as we refer to it, if we can have a healthy population of bacteria in our gut, that helps us to fight off lots of different diseases and we can have certain foods that promote that healthy gut balance. And we think that honey might be one of those types of foods. So really it's about trying to put behind the science for these traditional uses of honey. We know that it works. We're just starting to understand more and more about why it's so effective as a medicine in these ways. Wow, that's amazing. And then along the way, you're linking it to particular uh, plant groups and species within the Australian biodiversity. Exactly, exactly. Because one of the the common uh, misconceptions about honey is that it is just a generic food or a a generic product. But actually bees visit lots of different types of plants to make honey. They collect nectar, which they turn into honey. So all of those different colours and tastes and smells and flavours of honey that we have are not because we have different bees making different types of honey, but because the bees visit different plants. So those are the the tastes and the colours and the flavours and the the medicinal properties of the plants that they're visiting to make the honey. So I just wanted to add something around the fact that, you know, we stopped using honey because we were so fascinated by a single compound that we could isolate and use as an antibiotic. So an antibiotic is just one single compound. It's pure. And big pharmaceutical companies, I think Merck were the first big pharmaceutical companies during the war that developed uh, penicillin and produced penicillin. Little did we know at that point that bacteria could become resistant to it. And it was reported it at the time. But its antibiotics were then called the modern miracle of medicine because they could be used to um, save lives, save millions of lives, particularly during the war. So I, I guess all along, though, honey has been the champion because bees, uh, when they make honey, there are several, probably over 100 compounds in honey. Not all of them would be antibacterial, but many of them will be. And we know now that if you look at some of the different components, that it's the combination of those components that works so powerfully. So it's a potent killer of every bacteria you could put in front of it pretty much. And they can be antibiotic resistant. They can be antibiotic resistant to 26 antibiotics and you can still kill them with honey. The other thing is that Norel has actually done the experiment of showing you can't get resistance to honey. And that makes sense because if you've got like a hundred different antimicrobial compounds, you're not going to get resistance to them at least very quickly, right? And so nature already has it for you. So when I started talking, nature has designed this. And there are other whole compounds like honey where you've got multiple components and that's the key to it. And so while it's somewhat more, I guess, commercially attractive for companies to make an antibiotic with one compound, it's dangerous, we know now, to do that in many ways because you're going to get that resistance. And that means we won't be able to cure infections at all. So it is topical. It's not to be you know, for, for infections, it's not to be used orally for those. So it won't, won't do much for those, perhaps with the throat, but not with um, uh, infections. But it, we're really talking about topical infections. So I think that's what got me into that was that, you know, honey doesn't get eaten up by bacteria. If it did, you, honey would be completely mouldy and full of bacteria 
And we know that that never happens in our cupboard. Usually there's a bit of butter in it and sometimes the, the sugar crashes out. But apart from that, you can eat honey forever. You know, you can eat this from the same jar forever. So that's what it, why it's so beautiful. Oh, my goodness, the complexity, the diversity within the honey and its absolute resilience. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and it makes sense. I mean, and Liz also um, always does point this out as well. If we think about it, bees have been around for much longer than humans have. So bees and bacteria have been around for much longer than humans have, and they've evolved together. So bees and then consequently honey has been evolving with bacteria and its environment for so long before we even came into the picture, started harvesting honey to eat or to use it as a medicine. So it makes sense that we do have this natural product that's evolved so long with bacteria and that bacteria have not been able to become resistant to it. They can't spoil honey. And like Liz said, it is one of the foods that never goes off. So if it's stored appropriately, and unless it's drawing in moisture from the environment, it doesn't go off. And there was that report a few years ago where they found honey from the in the ancient Egyptian tombs, opened it up and it's still in the form that it was all those thousands of years ago when it was put into the tombs. It's incredible. It doesn't go off. Yeah. So it's not just a killer of microbes when you want it to be. It'll also, um, it also is, is, is something that we need to learn from because we haven't yet cracked developing an antibiotic that bacteria don't get resistance to quickly. So an amazing preservative by the sound of things, like just on a whole other tangent, but it's like this incredible preservative. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so staying helicopterish, your joint research suggests that there are some really positive outlooks for Australian honeybees and for high-value medicinal and therapeutic honey production in Australian bush and farm landscapes. I'm thinking of the incredible variety of Australian manuka, is that how I pronounce it? Manuka, manuka species, and, and eucalypts such as yellow box and ironbark that I think, Nural, your research is relating to prebiotics. Um, would you both just staying at that sort of high, what's the state of health in Australia sort of level, would you both like to comment on the big picture of the current state of health of Australian honeybees in terms of populations and the actual health of the honeybees, perhaps in comparison to situations overseas like the US, US and elsewhere? In a lot of uh, overseas countries, we are seeing something called colony collapse disorder where we have colonies of bees just dying and it's a very complex issue, actually. It's not just because of one major thing, but there's lots of things that contribute to this. Poor nutrition for the bees, which means their access to floral resources. Like us, bees need a diverse diet because they're relying on the plants to collect their nectar, which is their carbohydrate source. They're relying on plants for their pollen, which is their protein source. And the more variety they have, the healthier those colonies can be. So there's access to these types of plants which is changing because of things like climate change, the use of pesticides, really intense farming, even with bee farming or beekeeping, where we put them onto things like pollinating certain types of crops where they're only exposed to that type of crop as their feed for months on end. So there's a lot of different pressures. Uh, and of course, natural disasters, things like droughts, bushfire, uh, and any other natural disaster that can happen around the world. There's also a lot of different types of bee diseases and one major carrier of these bee diseases is the varroa mite. So a lot of these colony collapse disorders have been linked to the presence of certain types of disease that are carried by this mite. And we're very fortunate in Australia that the varroa mite has touched our shores, but not quite come into the country yet. Uh, but it's only a matter of time. It's not something that we can fight off forever, but we are one of the only two or three countries in the world that don't have the varroa mite. 
So when people talk about Australian honeybees as being really healthy, it's because we don't have a lot of the diseases that they can get overseas. And because a lot of our farming or our beekeeping, uh, we don't use antibiotics. We try not to use pesticides. A lot of our bushlands and national parks are as organic as they can be. And that's very tightly regulated within the beekeeping industry as well. So if they find a hive with an infection, the course of treatment is not to pump antibiotics into that hive, but we've got a different reporting system, a quarantining or an isolation system, or destroying that hive to make sure that the other hives are protected. So there's, it's about beekeeping practice is part of it, but also just understanding the health of the bees, what kind of floral resources they have access to and to make sure that they can be sustained all year round. And we are very lucky in Australia, again, because we do usually have something flowering all round. We don't have this really cold, dry winter or snowy winter where there's no floral resource. Um, but obviously we do have drought and bushfire to worry about. So we need to rely on those hardy plants that can still flower during those, those times as well. So in terms of our overall health, I think Australian honeybees are healthy but that doesn't mean that we can be complacent. Uh, we, are, we can be just as susceptible to all of the diseases. As soon as that varroa mite hits our shores, we need to be ready to go with a plan of action. How do we deal with these different types of diseases? What have we learnt from overseas? The, the, the treatments that they use, their use of pesticides or insecticides or whatever else they might be using in their farming to ensure that we can sustain our, our population of honeybees. Fascinating, sort of so much to unpack there, including the biosecurity issues that, like like everything, like COVID, we're susceptible. It just takes a few mites to get in and a lot of damage can be done. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, we in a lot of the beekeeping groups and associations, there are newsletters that are circulated. So as soon as there is an incidence where something's come in where there is varroa mite detected, a notification will go out to the to everybody around Australia to say, you know, in this port in Townsville or wherever it's coming in from, we've detected varroa mite. And it's more of an alert to say, we know it's on our shores, we've contained it, it's not coming in. Uh, but just be vigilant, especially if you're a beekeeper in that area. So look for these kinds of things in your hives, just in case something's gotten in. So we are very vigilant about that quarantine and the border protection. Uh, and we do have bee biosecurity officers and we've got lots of different ways that you can report and test for different types of diseases. Um, but again, it depends on how vigilant the beekeeper wants to be as well. Yeah. Well, we even, we actually, Anth, we have a, um, we have a set of beehives, as far as I understand, at the airport to test whether any varroa mite or other diseases are coming in. Fascinating. And just, just very quickly, and we'll get, I mean, in a funny way, we'll talk about this a bit more when we talk about the the Bushfires Recovery Project. But I, I have to ask, that was so fascinating when you spoke then about how our bees are quite healthy and resilient because they do have access to such a diversity of food sources. Can I ask of our apiarists, are they primarily relying upon quite biodiverse food sources in the present moment or are they susceptible to relying upon monocrop uh, pollen sources, perhaps like would be in the case of the canola fields of America? Is it possible to answer that or is it too broad? Yeah, most most of our beekeepers actually rely on access to public land. So, so yes. places like national parks where we do have quite a range of different types of plants there. Mostly they're dominated by native eucalypts. And of the eucalypt species, we have about 200 species that are very important for honeybees. And when I say important for honeybees, I mean they will, they will choose these eucalypt crops over anything else because of the nectar flow, because of the quality of the pollen that they get. Wow. 
So we do have access to quite a range of eucalypts that are that our bees can forage on, not to mention other types. I wonder what attracts them to eucalypts. I wonder what attracts them to eucalypts. Why do they fly out? They fly over the leptospermum ones, apparently, to go to the eucalypts. Yeah. And we don't, re- we don't really know if it's just ease of, you know, there's a heavy nectar flow. That could be one reason that attracts them or just the quality of the pollen is better. Uh, but they will preferentially pick certain types of plants over others. But of course, if that's the only type of plant that's available, they will forage on that. It's just they they do have a preference for some plants over others. Yeah, so it's mostly from eucalypts that we get our bees and and their their diet. Uh, But there are so many other plants as well. And there's so so much talk about what kind of pollinator-friendly plants can we plant, whether that's ground cover, so not just relying on the, the big eucalyptus trees, or access to national parks? What can we do in more rural areas? Uh, what can we do in more cityscape type areas to plant these pollinator friendly plants that are not just for honeybees, but our native pollinators as well. So everyone has something to forage on. Fascinating. So, that, so there's an issue there around whether the beekeepers have enough state forest land. And, and I think they pay a levy for um, to the state to actually access. So we need, we need to be, um, helpful to them in this way because I think sometimes there's a there's a there's a bat there's sometimes barriers to access that the beekeepers have to and they need to do this because uh, we're all relying on them for their for our food <laughs> so that that segues in very nicely to um, a discussion about uh, current research that you're involved with that's part of what looks like a really holistic response to the New South Wales bushfires and their impacts on forests beekeepers and the apiary sector supply chain in those forests that apparently without intervention at the current moment could see honey and pollinator productivity in New South Wales decline by some 30%, which is pretty dramatic. The project I'm thinking of, of course, is um, future-proofing the New South Wales apiary industry and keeping beekeepers in jobs project that, Mirai, you you highlighted to me, that aligns with the New South Wales government's bushfire industry recovery plan. And it's all the more important, not just in New South Wales, but in a national context, because New South Wales is home to almost half of Australia's beekeeping industry that suffered massive losses of hives, bees and flora stock and habitats, of course, from the fire. So, Nural, can you please describe and tell us about this really exciting project? I know it's huge, but just if you could provide us an overview because it's current and so important. Um, I understand it has six complementary research areas or, or elements and that you and your team at UTS with colleagues at University of Sydney are leading one of these. I think it's called New Honey Markets, Honey as a Health Food to Fight Gut Infection. Would you like to, um, to paint an overview of the six areas? Absolutely. So the the New South Wales Bushfire Recovery Grant was released by the New South Wales government to help industries that had suffered from the bushfires and also the droughts leading up to the bushfires for several years before that. And normally with the bushfire and drought recovery schemes, beekeepers aren't always eligible for these kinds of government support because it talks about landowners. So a lot of agricultural or farmers, agricultural industry and farmers have land that they put their cattle on or whatever it is that they're farming on. But beekeepers, like we discussed, rely on access to these public lands. So they're not actually landowners, they rely on access to public lands in order to do their farming, so to speak. That is so fascinating. It's it's a, it's a very uh, real and present example of the commons. Absolutely. So this was one of the first grants that the beekeepers were ever eligible for in terms of bushfire and drought support. Uh, So the industry contacted us 
uh, to say this is an industry grant. It's about trying to recoup some of the losses that we've had. So they had a couple of programs in mind for keeping beekeepers in jobs and just ensuring that beekeeping was a sustainable uh, and profitable job to still be in. But also they wanted to give back to some research or invest in some research that had direct benefits for the industry. And a lot of beekeepers rely on selling their honey in order to make their money. So they contacted me to say, you know, the any kind of scientific benefit or medicinal benefit or therapeutic benefit we can associate with the honey means that we can demand a higher price than just selling it as a table honey. So we'd like to put some of this money back into research that can then help create a positive impact back into the beekeeping industry. So we put together a big team uh, with people from industry, with people from the Department of Primary Industries, with uh, other organisations working on bees and pollinator-friendly plants. Uh, and we've got six different research or project schemes that are going on. So like you mentioned, two of those are related to honey research. One of them is looking at the bioactivity of honey, specifically looking at the antimicrobial and antifungal activity of different New South Wales-based honeys and trying to understand what which of our plants create these bioactive honeys. What is the status of our bees? Are they healthy bees make healthy honey? What are they feeding on? And what kind of honey do we get as, as a result of that? And then the other aspect of the bioactive honey project is looking at honey as a health food. So this is looking at the prebiotic activity of honey. When we eat honey, is it actually working as a prebiotic food to change our gut health or to improve our gut health and make us healthier? So they're the two honey projects that we're involved in or leading. And then the other projects are very targeted towards beekeepers and protecting the honey and beekeeping industry. So one of them is looking at an audit of all New South Wales government-owned lands to see if there are other lands that we can increase access for beekeepers to put their, their hives on. One project is looking at pollinator-friendly plants in rural New South Wales, so ensuring that we've got a lot of different floral varieties for our bees to forage on and ensuring that they've got that diversity in their diet and associating that with healthy honeybee populations. Uh, there are a couple of subsidised courses that current commercial beekeepers can take to upskill and ensure that they can stay viable in this, you know, after this bushfire and drought uh, losses that they've experienced. And the last project is about safeguarding our honey. So looking at what we can do to measure the authenticity of honey, measure where our honey is coming from and to be able to confidently say this is 100% Australian honey and not have any of these, you know, contamination issues or any of those things that keep popping up in the news to say honey fraud or honey adulteration. Like we want to make sure that when people buy 100% Australian honey, they know that they are getting the good stuff. So is that about markers and databases and things like that? Yeah, it's about it's about both biological and chemical markers that we can use to authenticate our honeys and to also relate it back to a floral source or relate it back to a geographic source to say this is a yellow box that comes from this region of New South Wales and it helps us to promote our honeys as some of the best in the world because that that's what they are. And Nero, you're working very particularly, aren't you, on the eucalypts project and the prebiotic therapeutic dietary uh, functional functional health food component of things, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Can tell us, just tell, I mean, just in a snapshot, tell us why honey as a prebiotic functional food is so important in an era of chronic disease. So for a long time, honey was used to treat a lot of different digestive remedies. And we think this has to do with its ability to boost the beneficial 
populations of bacteria living in our gut. So when we take honey orally, when we're eating it as a food, we think that there are certain components in honey that reach the gut uh, that we don't digest ourselves. And when they reach the gut, they can actually act as a food source for the millions of bacteria that live inside of us. And they help those bacteria, this honey helps those bacteria to produce beneficial compounds as well that help to fight off lots of different types of disease. And we know that these includes different diseases that start in the gut, but also there are a lot of diseases that are associated with an imbalance in our microbiome. Even things like mental health issues have been related to this imbalance in our microbiome. So we're trying to tease apart what it is about honey that works as a prebiotic, why is it promoting this healthy gut, and how can we use this information to then target certain types of diseases that stem from the gut to improve both our immunity, our overall gut health, and also our resilience to these different types of disease. And, and there's also a connection there with obesity, is that there are really healthy gut or, or a diminished biota gut? Exactly. So it's, it's about understanding whether, is it enough to just have this healthy population of microbes living in your gut? Is it a certain type of population that we're aiming for to target different types of disease? And can we do that through diet? And honey is just one, one example of these prebiotic foods that you can use. There are so many other examples of how to remediate that gut balance, mm -hmm. uh, but honey is just one of our focus foods. Are there particular eucalypts that you're looking at? We are. So for this project, because it's New South Wales based, we are looking at the New South Wales eucalypts. We're pick, we've picked two particular ones. We're looking at an iron bark and a yellow box. And the reason for this is we've done a pilot study previously where we looked at eucalypts, we looked at manuka, and we looked at canola honey. And the eucalypts seem to have a better prebiotic activity than the manuka or the canola honey. So we think that there are some components in the eucalypts that are different to the other types of honey that are promoting this prebiotic activity. And now it's about teasing, is it all eucalypts? Is it particular types of eucalypts that we can use for certain types of you know, gut remedies um, or to re-engineer that gut microbiome? and what it is in these eucalypts that's contributing to that prebiotic activity. So all honeys do have some level of prebiotic activity, but they all seem to be doing slightly different things in the gut. Thank you. Are both of you involved in the sixth project, the one that's around um, enhancing forest and bee health for high value medicinal honey, the, the Manuka Leptospermum ones? Liz, are you involved in that project? Yeah, yeah. I think um, there really is a Sydney honey team and um, Neural and myself are involved in that and uh, Dee Carter from the University of Sydney. And Shona Blair is now in the UK, but she's she's Australian through and through. And she she was the first person in Australia to really look at the antimicrobial activity of honey for her PhD with a supervisor who had never done anything with honey in research. So she was she was a real trailblazer. And so we're all friends, the four of us fabulous honey women. So we call ourselves the Sydney Honey Team. <laughs> yeah. So so we're involved in that particular area, and um, Laurel and I are more familiar with bacteria um, and their you know who they are and what they do and whatever so we're used to experimenting with them and then there's d um who is a mycologist which is a fancy name for a person who studies fungi and obviously fungal infections are a big issue and because they're so close to humans in terms of the molecules they use to survive um, it's quite hard to get drugs against fungi without affecting human health and there's also a problem with resistance so honey is actually quite a good antifungal for different reasons that it's a good antibacterial again it's those compounds that make a difference 
And different types of honey as well, I'll just add there. So different honeys will work better for different yes. bacteria versus fungi as well. And that's really what we're trying to tease out in this project too. Yes. So you mentioned the Manuka honey. Yes. Anthea, which is which is very good as an antibacterial, but not as good as an antifungal compared to some of the other honeys that we're looking at. Correct. Yes, which the 2019 study you did for AgriFutures yep. points that out very clearly, doesn't it? Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So one of the things we're looking at there is 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 how does diversity play a role um, in the antifungal and antibacterial activities of honey? And I guess like like everything ecological, diversity matters. Microbiome diversity matters. That's the one thing that we all know about a, a gut microbiome is that you need diversity. Uh, once you stop, and you know, like coral, you don't have the diversity, you don't have the resilience. So we're looking at a diverse diet for the bees should give a nice range and strong bioactivity of the honey. You know, that comes across very strongly in the description of the project. That's amazing. That the absolute emphasis on the biodiversity of the food source as being key to the health properties. It was Yeah, it's not something always the public understand. And I think it's really important that we drive this. Mm. Why do you really need biodiversity? And a friend of mine once just said, who works on coral and ecology said, because if you have a problem or a perturbation, i.e. climate change, big perturbations all the time, um, then the system is not very resilient, right? Mm. And when you have like, it's like mosaic agriculture or extreme weather events, if you've got systems of honey production and bee life, that can flourish across a diversity of diets that will be constantly changing and still delivering those health properties, it's it's just key to resilience, isn't it? It's amazing. Exactly. And disease changes with these things as well. Mm. So there are some really exciting opportunities <laughs> for more diverse plantings and mixed income streams on on farms and across our public lands and the commons, as we mentioned earlier. It's um mm-hmm. it's actually really joining the dots across public and private lands in a really exciting way, isn't it? Liz can I also ask you about other current honey research that you're focused on? I think you've mentioned when we've chatted previously that you're also looking at the very special role that honey-based dressings can play for very challenging wounds and possibly wounds and people who are possibly otherwise a little neglected by cutting-edge research and medical establishments. Would you like to speak about that or, or shall we? Yeah, So, so I think in terms of Honey, Liz, can I just do one one thing? We haven't talked at all about manuka honey. So if you want to talk about honey for wounds, maybe you can talk about why manuka is the gold standard for medicinal dressings as well. Okay. Yeah. So um, having come from a, um, a scientist who wants to understand how things work, I think we need we need something that will treat infections where you don't get resistance. And so the attraction for me to honey was exactly that. I mean, it's a fascinating gold liquid it's a lovely magical romantic thing honey and i think most humans would agree with me on that but but it also has this amazing non-resistant you know thing so the important thing for that was well we've been doing a lot of stuff in the lab with it we've been showing that it's bioactive others have been doing this of course around the world um, but we're, we have a fairly um, we have a lead position in looking at the bioactivity looking at whether it prevents different forms of bacteria that cause infection that are not affected by antibiotics at all so that research has been fantastic and it's been mainly at the bench and i guess um, we've known we've had honey dressings available for a long time in the world and people sell them and they're available just like many other dressings are available for wounds and wounds are a big problem there's um 
probably about five million, half, sorry, half a million people in Australia who have wounds at any one time, chronic, um, chronic wounds. And these are wounds that don't heal within three weeks, um, different definitions, but they last, some of them last for 20 years or longer, right? So these are wounds that don't heal. And chronic wounds have um, all sorts of issues with them. There's lots of, um, they're quite debilitating. People have to keep still with them. Um, they're not meant to be very mobile, in other words. So, and um, sometimes they smell a lot. They're quite painful. And so they're a sort of elephant in the room, if you like. They're quite a hidden thing. And because they happen with different situations like diabetes or old age with venous leg ulcers and so on and bed sores with people that go to hospital a lot or on their bottoms all the time um they're they're a real issue for people and um so it doesn't because it doesn't come from one particular disease necessarily it's not seen it's not like you know cardio heart attacks kill this many people and diabetes blah blah but it's it's a consequence of a whole lot of different things and it costs a lot of money and of course causes a lot of suffering so i've got half a million people half a million people yeah, there's a lot of people. And so I heard we were working with this company, Combito, in New Zealand, um, a really good company actually to work with, and they were producing honey and they were putting it into dressings with another company in the States. And what fascinated me was I was interested to see, do we know how well these dressings work? And the way in which they would work are many, many ways, and they use a manuka-based honey for this. They're mainly manuka because manuka is shown to be, with human wounds, a, a very good, effective antimicrobial, good at healing. And it also debrides the wound. So a wound often has slough, like dead tissue in it, as well as sometimes bacteria, and they form a nice film, which nurses are very familiar with. And the honey actually debrides it just by being there, not by the other ways to get a razor blade and debride it which is not always so painful, but it sometimes is, and it's not a, you know, they have to do it every day. So honey gets rid of that. Manuka also is quite powerful because with this particular application, because it has an activity that is special. And that is because it has a, it has a particular compound called methylglyoxal in it that no other honeys have. And this comes from indirectly from the plant that the bees get their nectar from. And many other honeys that have antibacterial Anti, antibacterial activity have hydrogen peroxide, which we know as bleach, which is used as a, a disinfectant, right? And it's highly effective. But if you add catalase, which is an enzyme that destroys hydrogen peroxide in honeys, it gets rid of the activity, their antimicrobial activity. So with manuka, when you do this, it still has just as higher activity against bacteria. So what we call is it's non-peroxide activity, and that's because of that special chemical. Now, the, the enzyme that, that destroys hydrogen peroxide is present in wounds. It's present as part of the wound bed. And so manuka, because it's not affect, the activity of manuka is not affected by, um, by that enzyme, it still is very active. So, so manuka is special for, for wounds, not necessarily, as Naral said, for a prebiotic dietary food. So for wounds, it's particularly good. And it's pretty much what's on the market at the moment. So you can get wound gel, you can get honey dressings in different types of ways, just like you can get a whole lot of other different dressings from different companies. And the question is, does it really work? And case studies and um, various small trials have shown that it's got promise. What we don't really know is, does it work if you do a full proper clinical trial? So what we're interested in is doing that. And there are a couple of other things that 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 are important here. And I guess we're, we're looking at the moment at malignant wounds and they're a particular problem because when a people are 
tending to be close to the end of their life with advanced cancer. These wounds form from tumours infiltrating through the skin. They're, they sometimes form this really, really horrible cauliflower appearance. They are absolutely amazing to look at if you look up web and, and look at these. And it's from the tumour growing. So one of the major issues with them is they really smell. And I'm talking, you can smell them from the front gate of a person who's got a wound in the house. Yeah. Kids are frightened and loved ones are frightened to go and see their parents or, or their, their loved ones in a room. It's extremely distressing and it causes a huge anxiety and depression and, and a quality of life problem for people with them and their carers. So nurses also just find it terribly distressing to even, you know, work with them. So um, honey actually is thought to reduce the odour and there is evidence for that. So what we're interested in is how is whether honey does do this well in a proper controlled trial um, and we might compare it with another type of dressing. So why does honey do this? One of the issues with the smell is it's dead tissue. So honey does debride that well. The other issue, main issue, is that you have a lot of bacteria. So these people are immune compromised. Not all wounds are terribly infected, but with malignant wounds, the smell is coming from bacteria that it's that anaerobic respiration you smell in wastewater plants and, you know, putrid water. So um, bacteria produce this stuff. Now, adding honey will kill the bacteria, but it will also change the metabolism from that putrid smell to a nicer smell. It's called aerobic respiration where they use oxygen because honey has a lot of sugar in it. And that particular sugar, particularly glucose, will change them to making a much nicer smelling metabolism, if you like. It's therapeutic, but it's cleansing it's it's doing a dual function is that right yeah yes yes so i think the malodor is the main issue with malignant wounds um and and then we'll move that across to chronic wounds but i'm 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 drawn to this project because we've met some people who um who are working in palliative care and they're extremely interested in this topic um and the quality of life thing for these people when they may have 3 weeks or 3 months to live is so important obviously all power to you liz that is an extraordinary gift and and such a precious area of research to focus on I'm, I'm i'm almost teary talking about it it's it's really really moving it is just so beautiful that you're focused on that and and that's coming out of manuka honey research just for all australians to know how many manuka species do we have in australia because there's quite a few aren't there well we've been doing manuka honey research for a long time and a lot of the research has been based on new zealand variety of manuka where they have one species and it's very popular all around the world so for the last five years liz has led a study that i've been working on with her uh, looking at the australian varieties of leptospermum which is a scientific name for the manuka plant so manuka is just one type of species, but in Australia, we've got over 80 different leptospermum species native to Australia growing all around the country. And we did a huge survey looking at our varieties of leptospermum. And we know that we have many varieties that are just as active, if not more active than the one manuka species. And we know that there are plenty more that we haven't even tested yet. So they all grow at different, different times uh, around the season. They grow in different environments. So it was really trying to tease apart, are all leptospermums active? And the answer is no, they're not all active, but some are very, very highly active and would be very suitable for medicinal use or for plantations if that's the direction that the industry wants to go in. So we do have a lot of untapped resource for that leptospermum honey. Well, it's very exciting and, and is part of the six elements of this research program you're both involved in now. Thank you for sharing all of that. That is, it's just, it's just inspirational. I just, 
I'm a honey devotee, which leads me into <laughs> I'm so fascinated and curious and curious to learn more about what drew you both as individuals and, and as researchers to honey research and what fascinates you about the incredible web of almost infinite uh, healing that honey uh, honeybees, native bees, ecosystems and human health and recovery, that incredible web of healing that honey's sort of so central to. Would you like to, and it's a bit of a meandering narrative, but would you like to share your, a bit of your story and your personal journey and about the seduction of what's got you in the honeypot, if you like? Liz, would you like to, um, to speak about that? You already have clearly talking about those malignant wounds is just so moving. But you're, you're an eminent microbiologist You've successfully pioneered fluorescence microscopy techniques and you're an absolute research leader in your field. But to a layperson such as myself, it, it looks as though you're moving into this whole new sphere. Would you like to talk to me about your journey around honey and healing? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it crosses cultural boundaries for me in terms of my sandstone upbringing at um, Sydney University and then Harvard University. I'm very grateful for that upbringing and just the, the culture of, of of the space I came from. Um, if you'd have told me I'd been working on honey 15 years ago, um, I would have laughed um, because I thought, oh, that's a bit silly. Um, honey's a bit mythical. We just slap it on, you know, honey and lemon drinks and all of that. Yogi Bear in the honey pot. Yogi Bear, exactly, exactly. Or Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh is one of my favourite, favourite characters. So, and I've got a crystal Winnie the Pooh, by the way, um, and a honey pot. So I think um, coming from very hardcore molecular science, nutrition, gut health, that sort of stuff was also not very well respected, nor would be something working on what you would call complementary and alternative medicine, although um, I don't know why we make that distinction, actually. Mm. So coming from that, I, I was working on how bacterial cells multiply. And just basic question, there was no application necessarily in my mind, for sure. And then we moved into antibiotic discovery, and I sort of dabbled in that. It's a very different world, very chemical it's a great world. There's lots of people working on it. And I sort of steered away from that because I thought, well, I'm not so sure I can add as much as I could to another field. And I must say when Shona Blair came to me and said, I'm interested in your molecular expertise to look at honey and how it affects bacterial cells, I thought, oh, do I really want to do this? So, you know, it came from a very different attitude. And then over the years, <laughs> do I really want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Do I really want to do this? Yeah. And it just you know, that sounds really daggy and very snobby. And, and it was, it was ignorant. And what I what I then realised um, over the years in talking to ecologists and Neral and, and Shona and Dee and just thinking they're lovely people to work with as well. Um, and that's really important when you're doing research. If you don't collaborate and really truly collaborate properly, you're never going to get the most out of your research. And you've got to feel free to be able to uh, pursue those passions really free. And that's not always the case. Because um, there's a lot of individualism in this sort of stuff. So, so working in the team was fabulous. And then I thought we're a bit of a hive, really, anyway. So I decided to um, <laughs> to move into it further. And when I started to give talks on honey, I must admit I was a bit hesitant to go back to you know the same place, Sydney University, and talk about my honeybee work. And it was unbelievable because they well to me because they were so interested in it. And I guess what I wanted to do was bring, as Neral had been and the others, bring a rigorous science that I was known for in some fields to, to honey, yeah? And so 
what was very satisfying is that they all went, oh, my God, do you think honey will work with this? And people saying, will it work with malaria? And everyone was so taken by the idea of honey being a natural antimicrobial. So that was very exciting. And they loved the science. And that story was that I tell is more interesting than the hardcore stuff. Well, I call it hardcore. We do hardcore work with honey now. But it was really interesting to them. Um, so, yes, we have credibility in this space. And that was really great. And then I started to think, um, so because it's such a good antimicrobial resistance, we did more work in the lab. So that, that work was really interesting. And honey poses different questions. So why, where you have an antibiotic with a, one pure compound, where you've got honey with multiple compounds, it's really tricky because all the, all the experimental approaches and, I don't know, the various mathematical models and whatever, they don't work for honey because it's got multiple components. So the gold standard things that big pharma and other researchers do don't fit. And so you're constantly challenged by this, whereas a lot of people might think, oh, complementary alternative medicine, just add a bit of essential oil to bacteria and see what happens. Well, you can do that, but... <laughs> You know, you, that's not the only experiment that you need to do, and of course. And so even control experiments and all those things are quite tricky. So I find honey really challenging from that perspective. And then it's socially challenging to researchers to say, well, we can't do it this way. We have to do it another way, even with publishing in journals, you know. Oh, it's honey. I don't know anything about honey. People don't want to review it because they don't feel they know enough. The other thing is they say, oh, this is honey. It's got multiple components. You can't publish that in an antimicrobial journal. Some of them don't accept it because they're more clinical and it's not what they do. So that's okay. That's their choice. But I find that to me, that's like a red rag to a bull because I then say, well, I am going to find a way where this product is going to actually help someone someday. And of course, many people, many days. So this is why I moved into the clinic because I thought it's a bold move for me because it's totally not my space and that everything is different. Every, every question you have, every answer you look for, everything you go about doing is different, even how you work with the people. So I've become a very patient person because clinical work is very, very slow. It takes a long time. But what we wanted to do then was to say, well, does honey work? We've got honey dressings. They're underutilized because partly because of social lack of acceptance, but mainly because it's not marketed very well. It's just that the it's in a big company that sells this as a small part of the market, whereas where we've got other companies that are very big. So you've got so many challenges with this. So not only is it about science and doing, you know, how do we think of good experiments to work with with honey and how can we measure how it works? So we're going to look at the microbiome of the wound and we're going to look at the, the measuring the odour, which is something people don't know how to do well. Um, how do we do this chemically so that we, and it's not just honey, it then becomes this big malignant wound problem. So yes, starting off with honey and then all these people from health, social science, um, business are interested because partly they're fascinated with honey, but they're also very interested, as is everyone, with quality of life. And most people do know, you know, I've heard people say, oh, I know this person who has cancer and yes, they have this horrible wound coming out of their breast right at the end of their life, which was just something we really didn't know what to do you know about so so there's this whole area so that's the fascination with honey the interest in the antimicrobial power it has and i don't think we've got into health into the health space to say how good is it what's it good for it's not going to be the be all and end all but we're not utilizing it and the science of it is amazing and so how can we join all that together the, the clinical the meth methodological uh the 
professional discourse, I don't know what you call it in science, but, you know, like you could be publishing and researching on so many levels there. Yes. But you're just getting on with it. It's just really inspiring. Quality of life and healing on multiple levels is just quite, quite incredible. And suddenly I'm an expert, but amongst many, many others now. And it's, it's it's a really interesting transdisciplinary leadership challenge, which I'm you know, always confronted with. And that, that's an ex, a really exciting part of life. So I thank Honey for all of those things. And, of course, my workers, my co-workers. Your, your, your queen, Honey Bees, your fellow queen bees. My queen bees. But, but you, you spoke earlier about, you know, the multiple antibacterial qualities and that there are no single compounds and, you know, just this systems complexity being really important for resilience, particularly in times of climate change and changing environments. And you mentioned... Um, how people are interested in mosquito, you know, that you, you actually just dropped mosquitoes into that conversation. I had a question about that with changing climates and temperatures, the, the recurrence of uh, tropical diseases that we thought had been put to bed, if you like. Um, is, is honey going to play a big role there? Oh, who knows? I would say always be open. It A few years ago I gave a talk at a Brisbane conference where um a French guy who was part of the Malaria Network, I forget the name of the organisation, lovely guy and very, you know, um, theatrical guy, um, which isn't always the case with a scientist, but he ran up after I gave the honey talk and said he didn't know anything really about honey and its medicinal properties and said, we should try this with malaria. Um, and then he looked over to another person in Australia and said, why didn't you just test this in your screening? And she just looked at him as if he was said something alien. So it was quite funny. But, yeah, that's the same with COVID. You know, is it, is it possible that there's com- compounds in honey that could fight COVID? Yeah, absolutely. The issue I mean, with wounds, you don't have to take anything out of the honey. People, you know, some people are probably, as we speak, thinking of ways in which we can take stuff out of the honey to make it more standard, you know, gold standard. But at the moment, it's called a medical device, a wound dressing, and that that's not a drug. So it doesn't have to be, you know, pure and all, doesn't have to have all these restrictions around it, which sensibly so drugs do. So, um, but still there's a push from bigger companies to say, well, you know, can't we just have something a bit purer? But I think I think the beauty in wounds of whole honey is that the, the whole thing is good. The sugar is good. But getting things out of honey, still it's quite tricky because we don't know exactly what's in honey. And the thing that there's some interactions between the different compounds. Some of them are dampening. Some of them are, are, are synergizing together for good, thing, you know, for good. And so we don't know that. So with if you, if you used it for anything else like malaria, that's an internal, an internal infection, then you would have to take compounds out of honey. And the same with any internal disease in general you'd have to take the compounds out and work out what concoction or what one compound would work you have resistance with malaria as well of course so the combos could work quite well yeah sorry long answer but yeah but one of the issues is that those insects are coming down south and they're changing where they are so uh, it's a good question it's okay we don't have to answer it today I was going to ask you if you had an unlimited if you had an unlimited research budget and a blue sky passionate interdisciplinary team of people and skills to work with. So the sky's your limit. What new or additional big research projects or topics, Liz, would you be working on in five years' time and perhaps in ten years' time? And Neural, I'd ask you the same question. So I guess what I would do is um, I would start with the I would build the wound project so to be international. 
um, with developing countries particularly, because I think it could be used not only for malignant wounds, but wounds in general. For leprosy, there is evidence for that. So I think we could start using it topically um, in places where it's probably going to be accepted better. And certainly malignant wounds are far more prevalent in places like India where they present to the doctor with those malignant wounds. So, so have a big international team working on this. Wow. So that the realisation of how honey might be able to help with these things and then move that across to whatever we learn and whatever technologies we use for that to move that across to other areas of topical need like dermatitis, acne, those sorts of things. So it's partly about honey. It's partly about learning from honey, not just its antibacterial activities, but learning about how you can work across disciplines to do that would be great. So a dream of mine is to have a a sort of a a big health space where people are working in different disciplines, but in, in health. And then the other part of it might be something around honey and bees to have like a cooperative research center around, dare I say it, around bees and honey that where we have both commercial option for you know commercial uh, benefits health benefits of course and benefits for the bees benefits for the indigenous people um this would be probably initially around australia but it might it might go international of course but have different partners and i think just thinking about commercial benefit and health problems is one thing but I I think there's a fascination about honey and bees for people so the other part of me the social science part of me which I never knew really existed too much is there saying why is it that people are so fascinated with this and how can we dip into that how can we dip into that um that fascination Mm -hmm. To, to get more benefit from what we do thanks Liz Nural I was going to ask you to respond to some of the things that uh, Liz has suggested. And I can I can probably just add on to Liz's because I think we do share a very similar vision in terms of the bigger picture. I think both we do both want to see it used in the clinic appropriately as well. So not for everything, but what honey works best for what condition and really have the rigorous science behind that. That would be ideal. Have those clinical trials and that data ready to go to say, we know that this type of honey works really well on this type of wound. This type of honey is a great antimicrobial and this is great as a prebiotic for these types of things and whatever other bioactivities we can study as well. So whether that's inflammation, if it's, you know, wound healing specifically. So there are lots of different bioactivities. You don't have to have all honeys doing the one thing, just identify the most appropriate honeys. And I think this is what we do well. We're very good at separating the science from the snake oil. And I think that's why people do respond to the types of research we do, because we're not saying that honey will do all of these things. We're very particular about how it should be used and when we think it's effective. And we just really need to build that evidence base behind it. Um, And in the same way, I think, you know, that we can expand on the health implications and understand the impacts that it has on health, but I'm also interested in what other impacts it has. So can we have education programs behind, you know, informing the public, informing clinicians on the best use of honey? I think that's really important because how else will we get it to be uptaken in the clinic, uptaken in our our homes every day? Uh, And to understand more about bees. I think we focus so much on honey. We focus on the floral sources and trying to link this activity or the bioactivity to the floral sources. But let's look at bees now and look at how bees contribute to this. Is it certain types of bees? Is it the health of bees, the age of bees, what they're feeding on? So to really look at it more from a whole system point of view, the climate, the environment that the bees are foraging in, what kind of stresses the bees are under and how that 
affects the products of the hive, honey being just one of those products. So I'd really like to get that full picture, be working with clinicians, be working with bee researchers and environmental researchers and plant researchers, just really build that team, but also make sure that the science is still accessible to everyone that needs to access it. And I think that that, I think this type of research, not only is it interesting, like we said, people do have a fascination with honey and bees. And I think honey is a medicine particularly because everyone has a story that they remember their grandmother said to use it for this, or they heard that it was used like this in the olden days. And I think that's what keeps me in, in honey research as well. It's so accessible to people and people have such a familiarity with it. Yeah. And it's got cultural and historic significance. It really is just an all encompassing thing. It's not just the science that keeps you there and the challenges because scientifically it is very challenging to work with honey, but just the fact that you can talk to so many different people. And I love that we get to work with so many different types of people. It's not just other scientists, but we work with beekeepers. We get to work with politicians and policymakers. We get to work with the general public and people in the media. Like it's, it's just, I never thought that being a scientist meant that I got to work with all these different communities of people. And that's what keeps me, I think, in this, in this research field. I was going to say, you're a bit of a, um, uh, in terms of your amazing career so far already, you're you're almost a poster girl for women in STEM, aren't you? She is. She is. I was going to ask if you would ever see yourself uh, betraying honey and going and applying your skills to another area, but I think you might have answered that perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure. I think the, the honey is good. I'll, I'll ride this until, you know, there's no funding left to do it anymore. But I think one of the things that I do like most about this research area is that it does make science accessible to lots of different types of people, whether they have a very scientific background or not. Um, and for a long time, when I first started, a lot of scientists actually didn't like hearing about honey and the science that we did because it was it was dismissed a lot of the time so most of the positive feedback I got were from general population or beekeepers or other industry partners and only in the last couple of years have we really seen that change where scientists are saying wow this is really good science and it's amazing does it work for this thing that I'm researching could it work for this could we work so it's a it's a big shift in attitudes mm. from the scientific community but I think that general interest has always been there and yeah, it's just a good good topic to get people excited about science because it's something that they can understand. They've used it in some kind of way and they want to understand why it works. And it is so exciting, you know, just as you say, also the health of bees, obviously the health of people, but for food security. Absolutely. You know, we've just kicked off the decade of ecosystems restoration. It's open source if you can get the good science out there without the snake oil. And, and Liz, what you said about people in India and Africa and, you know, there's a, there's a social justice, open commons dynamic to all of this. Yeah, social justice, absolutely. Which is just so um, empowering and inspirational. So so thank you, my goodness. <laughs> um, so we've been chatting for quite a while. You're probably, you know, keen to get off to your other COVID activities. <laughs> So, but I, I just thought it might be quite nice to sort of ask you both a question. As really prominent female researchers at different stages of your career, who are both at the vanguard of, you know, just incredibly important research for, for humanity and for the planet, let's face it, what advice would each of you give to your young, younger selves? In terms of just generally? Yeah, and, and in terms of choosing to do science or microbiology or... Yeah. So, so I, I guess, I guess for me, it's curiosity that drives me. And each time I come back to that, I'm always asking, why is that? 
and how can we find out? So there's always got to be that in my research. And even with the honey stuff, there's well, there's always there's always that. And then you find all the Christmas has come up once when you find what you're interested in and passionate about finding out that it actually has a has a use and a value um, to something that you're keen to contribute to. Um, so I think it's the curiosity. Science to me is like putting your hands into a black box. You can't see anything in there and you're trying to work out what it is. And um, you've got to be patient. Um, I'm not the most patient person, but I work on bacteria because they they grow really quickly is what I always say. They double their number. The ones I work with double their number very quickly. So I got into research that way. Um, I think... I love the critical thinking involved. I love the systematic approach of saying that experiment didn't work. How do we work this out? How do we make the system tell us what we want to know? And you're always humbled by it. You know, whatever question you have, there's enough as a million others. So at times it's overwhelmed me, science. As a PhD student, it really overwhelmed me. I thought, I've got all this data. I have no idea what it means. And I learned that that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, to have that feeling because that's where you often are. As a woman in STEM, if I may, um, I think my key bits of advice are stick together with women in STEM. Not that you, I mean, you need to move away, move around, but keep coming back to the people that give you the nourishment you need to keep going. So that is often female scientists, not always, but someone who keeps letting you know how good you are and how much worth it's following your dream. So, yes, there's the thing of never give up. But I think with that there's a thing about just talk to people how you're feeling when you feel a little bit, oh, this is really difficult because it is more difficult for women in STEM and women in many places. There is no question about it. And sometimes that gets hard. But think of it of just knowing there's many, many women in your place feeling that and you need to talk to them about it just to know it's real and it's not you and that you might need to give yourself half a day or a bit of time sometimes to just go, okay, let's just be gentle with myself for a while and then your motivation will come back again. So it's not, a, it's not about just steamroll through it regardless. It will affect you as life does. So let it affect you. It's okay. You can have a cry. You can have a whatever. You can get cranky. And whatever you do, keep moving with grace towards towards your goal. Stuff everyone else. Stuff everyone else except your mentors. Exactly. Well, yeah, if you don't like what people say or you just don't agree with them, just don't listen. It will affect you. I think that's the key. You can't just go, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody does. Every powerful female in the world will be and person will be affected by insults like our indigenous people are so beautifully expressing now they will be affected by those insults far more than i have been god so you know but they keep pushing back to say i'm a person here hello and people don't mean like in stem in science people don't mean to make it harder for women but it just is so it's important to remember that it's not about any particular person usually, although you might swear at them every now and then under your breath. It's actually about just moving forward with what it is that you want and that your good value. Thank you, Liz. So look it in the face, be honest, and um, don't be intimidated by it. Meryl, what about you? I think I like the don't be intimidated by it because one of my, I've got two bits of advice. So a 17-year-old me would be preparing for my university exams that year, right? I'm in year 12. 
So I would say it's okay to ask my questions out loud. I was always the quiet student who would have a question and be like, I can figure this out myself before I ask anybody else, before I ask the teacher. Oh, baby, look how far you've come. <laughs> um, I still tend to do that quite a lot. I'm better at it now because I've got some really good, strong female mentors who tell me just do what you need and get other people to help you. So that's good. But ask your questions out loud. It's okay. And it's also okay to do something you love, even if it's not the norm. So for me, um, I knew I wanted to go to university. My dad wanted me to go to university, but I grew up in a very traditional Turkish family in a part of Sydney that was, you know, lots of migrant families. And I was the first in my family to go to university. So I really had no idea what university was, what going to school for the next big school for the next 10 years was going to look like and what a PhD was or what research was at all. And I didn't know you could be a scientist as a job. So that wasn't the norm in my community. It wasn't what, what females did particularly. Um, so yeah, I think it's okay to do something even if it's not the norm. I thought the only way I could, I knew I, I was always fascinated with disease and my dad said, oh, that's it. You're going to be a doctor. And I thought, oh, the idea of working actually with sick people in a clinic, I don't know if I could do that. I just want to know the behind the scenes stuff. And I didn't know you could be a scientist. Even when I was 17, I didn't know until I went to one of those university open days and they said, oh, I'm a researcher and this is what I do. I thought, wow, people get paid to figure out the behind the scenes stuff that the doctors do. So they would be my two bits of advice. Wow. Ask my questions out loud and do something even if it's not the norm. And I guess that translates to the honey research as well. Honey research was not the norm when I started, but now it is good science and it is accepted in the scientific community as well. Yeah. And you two are, are really breaking down barriers to make that all the more so. So thank you both so very much for sharing your incredibly rich and beautiful stories. It's a pleasure. And for offering so much to people and the environment and all of our collective futures. It's just, um, it really is inspirational and um Healing on so many fronts. Professor Liz Harry and Dr. Nero Chocherton, bravo and huge thanks to you for what you do and for so generously sharing your time and insights with me for Nourishing Matters. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Nuz. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.